Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. The evil that you know is better than the evil that you don't know seems <laughs> like an apt cliche here. Would the Democrats be better off like finding somebody else and, and somebody who's younger and more vibrant and, and you know is just different and younger? I mean, yeah, maybe, but there's also risk inherent in that um, because you know Biden, I think, has helped sort of paper over a lot of the fissures in the Democratic Party. Welcome back to Politics is Everything. We are here for another Crystal Ball edition. I'm Kara Ongwaley. And I'm Kyle Kondik. So Kyle, we are recording on April 25th, which is the day that... Joe Biden officially uh, entered the ring and, and became a candidate for uh, re-election. Um, was not necessarily surprising that he was going to run again. Um, and in fact, uh, you know, I think part of what motiv- has motivated Biden was... Um, that he wanted to run against Trump again, potentially, and Trump made it very obvious that he was running again with a very early announcement um, right after the midterms and making it pretty obvious he was going to do it. And so, uh, you know, Trump is uh, Trump got in and, and now Biden is in too. So across more than 230 years of American history, 26 presidents have run for re-election after a full term, and only 10 have lost. A mere four have in the last century. Um, Herbert Hoover, Jimmy Carter, George Bush, and Donald Trump in 2020. At 80, Biden is already the is already the oldest American president in history. And really, what we're seeing from the polls is that younger people, especially um, uh, younger people, especially, have wanted to see more leadership that reflects their demographic. And Biden, who is now 80, would be 82 on election day in 2024, and 86 years old at the end of his second presidential term. He is, of course, now the oldest president in history. The challenge has been that Democrats just really don't know what alternative there is out there. So this week, you look at how approval at the time of election might predict um, how how it might correlate with the national vote share that a president gets. Um, what does what does history tell us about approval and where Biden's approval is now? Typically, a president will get roughly uh, the, the same share of the vote that you know, his, his, his approval rating is. Um, the, there have been a few exceptions in recent years. Um, George H. W. Bush was at thirty three percent approval; he got thirty seven percent of the vote. Um, you know, I think he was even even in a in a three way race that year. He was sort of um, you know, running it up against sort of the floor of what, you know, a major party presidential candidate could get. Um, Bill Clinton in uh, 1996, 55% approval, only got 49% of the vote. But again, Perot was running that year. So it was a kind of a, more of a significant third party um, a vote than what you usually see in American presidential elections. Uh, but, you know, with, with Trump and Obama, um, uh, uh, you know, Bush in 2004, you know, generally speaking, they were around what their approval was. Um, and, you know, I think you look at where Biden is now at, you know, 
42, 43%. I'd say that's probably, if that's what it is on election day, it's going to be hard for him to win at that, you know, at that number. However, um, we also saw in the midterms that um, there are a significant number of people who disapprove of Biden, but were still willing to vote Democratic for in their house, in, in House and Senate elections last year. Um, I do think Biden's approval is going to have to get a little bit better for him to win. Um, but I don't necessarily think 50% is a magic number. I would more think about it as like 45 or 46 potentially. Um, but again, we're just sort of spitballing here. But, um, you know, I think also the, the trajectory of the approval matters. So like if Biden is mired in the four, in low 40s for the next year, but then he sort of ticks up near the end toward the election, that probably would be indicative of him winning re-election, even if he's not at 50 percent. Uh, and likewise, if he's, you know, dipping into the 30s or something, that probably would be indicative of him not winning re-election. Um, but, you know, these elections are not referendum their choices uh and a big 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 factor here is who the republicans nominate and whether that person has broad appeal or not i also wonder the extent to which approval rating is really going to be much of an indicator of anything in this current state of hyperpartisanship and the ways in which if it is a Trump-Biden matchup, <laughs> so many people are going to be holding their nose. And you mentioned, you write about this in your article, but in 2022, um, you know, Biden's approval numbers were, were quite low, but Democrats still held their own. And the red wave that many were predicting didn't quite materialize. Um, and part of that, um, as you write about, is that that Biden did better among disapprovers than Republicans did of approvers. Um, so as we're looking to 2024, what do you think the strategy is for the campaigns thinking about um, you know, how to reach when there's probably a lot of disapproval to go around for all the candidates. Let's assume it's Biden versus Trump again. Maybe it's not. Who knows? But if it is, I think it's pretty likely that they're going to be uh, at least a small but, but significant electorally sliver of voters who held, hold a negative opinion of both people. Um, and this was true. It was very true in 2016. There were um, a, a decent, there was a, a, a bigger share of the electorate that held a negative view of both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Eventually, those folks broke toward Trump at the end, I think, because he was sort of the, the change candidate and for other different reasons. And so Trump was able to, you know, to narrowly win that, that election, um, even though he lost the, the, the popular vote. But I think both campaigns should be thinking about how do I appeal to people who, <laughs> um, who don't like me but don't like the other guy either? Because there are going to be those kinds of voters. And in an era where it may be that both parties have a pretty high floor, like 45, 46 percent of the popular vote, how do you get that get over the finish line in the key states? Um, and how do you craft a message that appeals to those kinds of people who um, have a negative view of both candidates? And oftentimes some of those people are independents who maybe pay less attention. Maybe they're less likely to turn out. How do you motivate them to come out and vote for you or to vote against the other person? You know, that's that, that's that's the to me, that's the most important part of the electorate. And in some ways, it can be sort of the, the hardest people to reach, the hardest people to motivate. Um, and some of those people may opt just not to show up at all because they don't like their choices. So as we're thinking about 2024, it's going to look a lot different than 2020, even if the nominees are Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Um, 
potentially speaking, of course, God forbid we have another pandemic. But in 2020, you know, we were in a pandemic. Uh, Joe Biden was pretty sequestered for most of most of the campaign. Um, the the uh, national conventions were held virtually. Um, you know, but Donald Trump was out on the road um, a lot more than than um, Joe Biden was. I actually looked up some some statistics on this um, leading into the last three weeks of the campaign. Donald Trump made more than twice the number of campaign stops as Joe Biden did. Um, Forty eight stops in 15 states. And that was him just coming out of a COVID quarantine as well, because he had been in quarantine prior to that, um, compared to Biden, who went to only 23 events in 10 states. And then, relatively speaking, from September until Election Day, um, or until the beginning of November, Donald Trump made 79 stops in 17 states. Mike Pence did 56 stops in 19 states. Joe Biden did 57 stops in 13 states. And Kamala Harris did only 35 stops in 13 states. Um, you know, as we're thinking about Joe Biden's age and, and even Donald, I mean, Donald Trump is still out on the campaign trail in a lot of ways. He's he's still been out there showing, you know, what is the Biden campaign going to need to do, um, especially given his age? I mean, it seems pretty clear from the polls that that Biden's age is a huge concern, even for Democrats. I mean, that's, you know, you, you just generically ask people, hey, do you, you know, do you want Biden to run again? And it's often there, there's a big majority who don't want him to run again, um, and even a significant number of Democrats who feel that way, too. And um, just, you know, I think Biden probably shows his age a little bit more than Trump, as we felt that way in 2020 as well. Um, they're both, they're certainly both older candidates. Um, and you could point to, you know, Trump's performance and Biden's performance and make critiques and um, and all sorts of things. But, um, you know, we know from the polling that, that there's just a lot of concern about Biden's age. And so if he's not active out there on the campaign trail, maybe that sort of feeds into things. Or if he is out there active on the campaign trail and making mistakes, that sort of feeds the narrative, too. So, um, you know, the Biden campaign, I think in, in some ways they probably would want to run. Um, what's the term? The Rose Garden campaign, you know, like you're the incumbent, you're working in, in the office, you're not out there as much. And that would actually probably, be, you know, play right into what the Biden campaign wants to do. But they can't shelter him, you know, throughout the, the, the course of the campaign. Um, you know, it, it doesn't seem like, you know, Biden does have a few primary challengers, although both of them, I think, are frankly kind of out there. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and Marianne Williamson. I don't think Biden would debate them. Um, Trump was just making some noise about whether he would debate himself, given his sort of front running status right now. Um, but I do think that, that it's probably likely we're going to see Republican primary debates, which, you know, there's always a lot of those primary debates. And it's kind of a grueling schedule. Um, and so how does that how does that work for these for these uh, um, for these candidates? But uh, but yeah, I mean, I think the, in some ways the pandemic was sort of just from a from a sort of campaigning standpoint, it's actually kind of helpful to Biden because he wasn't likely to have a super active uh, campaign, you know, campaign strategy anyway. And um, he may be sort of sheltered, too. Uh, and again, that just sort of plays into people's concerns about his performance and his age and whatnot. Even, I mean, the announcement video that came out this morning, April 25th, um, actually had what you described, right? The the Rose Garden strategy, right? It shows him in the White House, lots of pictures of the White House, lots of pictures of him doing policy. So, I mean, we're already getting the indicators of, you know, we're going to, we're just going to do a lot of imaging, a lot of social media, um, uh, show, show him in governance. I think it's, it's going to be really challenging to show him out, out on the trail. You know, very highly produced, very, very slick production, just like we're, I think we're used to, I think particularly from democratic campaigns, there's sort of like a, 
a cadence and sort of a look and feel. Yeah. Um, a lot of the Trump stuff is actually a lot kind of, I would say, almost like grittier and not as produced, which I think actually sort of plays into um, what some people feel about uh, the, the appeal of Trump and, and whatnot. But um, but but uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, we're uh, uh, I think Biden is probably going to want to be as sheltered as possible. And again, that's can be kind of a risky in a campaign. Um, uh, again, particularly because you're going to be, I think both sides are going to be so reliant on um, essentially help, hoping that ne- what we call negative partisanship kicks in and that people are sort of voting more against the other side than, than for their, their own side. Um, and look, I mean, you know, it, I, do I think the Republicans would be better off electorally nominating someone other than Trump? Yeah, I think I do feel that way. Although I guess you could argue that um, if you don't nominate Trump, then maybe you lose whatever you may be gaining in crossover. You're sort of losing in terms of base level support and, you know, dead enders who don't show up for Trump. I, you know, who knows what would happen there. Um, but, you know, they're also, um, you know, maybe a, a younger, different candidate is able to make a better contrast with Biden. Um, and Trump just has so much baggage. But, yeah. you know, that said, um, I you know, obviously wouldn't rule out Trump winning or anything like that. I mean, um, even though Democrats probably want to run against him again. But, you know, just, sometimes you get what you wish for and it doesn't work out. So essentially what you're saying is you don't see Joe Biden coming up with cosplay cards. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. That's right. Yeah, I was sorry. It took me a minute. Yeah, the, I think you're referring to the, the Trump NFTs or whatever. Yeah, or, yeah right. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know cosplay cards. I barely can keep up. Yeah, I don't know. There's pr- probably all sorts of different different ter- terminology for these things. But um, but yeah, you know, and there is there is sort of a, um, you know, there's sort of a, a, I mean, Biden, Biden was was elected more because he just like wasn't Trump. And there's not like this movement around him the way there was, I think, for like Obama or, uh, or maybe some other past Democratic candidates. But, you know, th- that might also be helpful in the sense that maybe he doesn't generate as much sort of um, strong opposition or that sort of thing, um, whereas Trump is sort of a thing inherently more polarizing and more kind of motivating on, on sort of both sides of the fence, whether you, whether you like him or you, you don't like him. I'm also wondering the extent, you know, in 2016, when there was a potential for a Clinton-Bush, Hillary Clinton versus Jeb Bush matchup, you know, there was a lot of, um, I think, pushback from voters like that didn't want to see that kind of matchup. And, you know, I'm, I'm starting to wonder if we do see a Biden-Trump uh, rematch, the extent to which a number of people might just stay home. I think it's a great point. Um, there's probably going to be just some exhaustion with the electorate from having Trump on the ballot three times. But again, you know, assuming he's nominated, there's a long way to go. Um, but, you know, one of the stories in recent weeks has just been that, the, you know, DeSantis, Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, is sort of an unannounced candidate, but he's sort of having some trouble, you know, with, with sort of some of his home state um, House members, you know, endorsing Trump and uh, and that's that sort of thing. But yeah, I mean, we, we are in this sort of higher turnout era. Is it possible that um, Biden Trump would just burn some people out and they just some people just wouldn't show up and maybe turnout would take a little bit dip. Um, you know, turnout in 2022 was not as high as it was in 18. Um, it's like 45% of eligible voters, which is still really high for a mid, for an American midterm. Um, you know, back in 2014, I think it was like 30, it was the 36 or 37. Yeah, yeah it was the lowest, uh, lowest in, in a very long time. So, um, but yeah, there, I think there was a potential for exhaustion, just like you might have seen with, with Trump and Clinton in, in 16. I think. Uh, if I remember correctly, uh, 2014 was the lowest since 1914. <laughs> yeah, I think that, that sounds right. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought up Ron DeSantis um, because I wanted to uh, bring that that up as well. Um, 
So Donald Trump is far outpacing any challengers in terms any challengers in the Republican primary field and racking up endorsements. Um, perhaps most notably f- so far, he's received more endorsements from Florida lawmakers than Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. So that might be some sort of indicator. Um, however, there's also some state level um, polling that came out this week that looks at how DeSantis would do against Biden in the keys in in key battleground states like Wisconsin, Nevada, Pennsylvania, Georgia, um, versus how Donald Trump would do against Biden. And the polls in those states, and again, take polls with a grain of salt, especially state polls, and especially this far out. Um, But what they're showing so far is that DeSantis does better um, against Joe Biden in those key states um, than Donald Trump does against Biden. Uh, yeah, in terms of the endorsements, you know, there was a, a a theory that was very much in vogue in the 2016 cycle, which was the, the so-called party decides idea, basically that sort of the even though uh, we're in an era where nominations have been um, small d democratized um, and, you know, the, the, the old smoke filled rooms of the 30s, 40s, 50s and 60s, you know, picking nominees, that that sort of went by the wayside and that the, there's more sort of, uh, um, you know, basically kind of a direct vote through the primary system in terms of who gets nominated. But that party leaders will exercise some sort of power over the process through their endorsements and, uh, uh, you know, backroom support and all this other stuff. And um, that thesis was, I think it's been been correct in some years and not correct in other years. And certainly, you know, the, 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 the so-called party establishment did not really like Trump in 2016. He got the nomination anyway. But it's interesting that you are seeing some real institutional support. I mean, Steve Daines, um, Senator from Montana, who chairs the National Republican Senatorial Committee, so he's a very important figure in the party. He uh, he endorsed Trump uh, the other day on Don Jr. Donald Trump Jr.'s podcast, um, and I thought that was kind of significant and interesting. And and look, I mean, you, you've got these polls with the primary with Trump, you know, over fifty percent a lot of the time, uh, and key figures in the party endorsing him. And so um, maybe the party decides thesis is actually coming into play here, in that there's a clear leader and. Party leaders sort of see who's you know see what's up, and they're getting behind him. So again, it doesn't mean it's over or anything, but it's just, it's interesting that um, that Trump still retains some you know a lot of institutional support within the party despite all of the you know all the baggage over over the um, over the years. You know, again, I mean, but certainly potentially DeSantis, and this is the case that he and his supporters are making, is that he would give the party more of a fresh start and a better chance to compete in these swing states, and that very well might be the case, but. Um, but, you know, that that particular argument doesn't seem to be having much sway right now. But again, long way to go. Of course, DeSantis may also just not run. I mean, he hasn't announced yet. So um, we're all expecting him to. And he seems to be getting ready to run. But um, maybe he's taken so much of a beating over the last couple of months that he just decides not to do it. Um, in which case, maybe some other alternative would emerge to Trump. The evil that you know is better than the evil that you don't know seems <laughs> like an apt and, and, cliche here. And, 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 I mean, you, you could apply this to Biden, too. I mean, would would the Democrats be better off like finding somebody else and, and somebody who's younger and more vibrant and, and you know, has, has uh, um you know, just, you know, it's just different and younger. I mean, yeah, maybe, but there's also risk inherent in that um, because, you know, Biden, I think has helped sort of paper over a lot of the fissures in the Democratic Party. If you had an open nominating process with a bunch of, you know, governors and senators running, you know, maybe maybe some of those fissures break open and you have the um, the left wing of the party, you know, uh, uh, not acquiescing whoever the, the establishment choice would be. So um, it, there is a there is a sort of like, small C conservative 
argument to say, well, if you're the Democrats, just stick with Biden. And that's what seems to be happening um, because there's the least amount of risk there. Although actually there is a lot of risk given his age and all this other stuff. Um, and for Trump too, there's a whole lot of risk, but um, you know, maybe maybe that, you know, the, the worry that, that he would, him getting forced out or not running would, would demobilize part of the Republican electorate. You know, maybe that's seen as a as a, as a as as bigger risk than going with than uh, um, whatever risk would, would come with uh, um, uh, you know nominating somebody else. So um, you know, there you could say, well, why don't the parties choose someone else? It seems obvious that they should, but maybe it's not obvious that they should. Um, and the, the electorates of both parties seem to be you know okay with ultimately um, the nominees from 2020. Listeners, please be sure to read the full analysis by Kyle Kondik, managing editor of Sabado's Crystal Ball, goes into depth about presidential approval and the chances for incumbents. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.